0: Romans chapter 2. Paul has been moving through here. He is getting to a particular point. We read 16 and 17 of chapter 1 where he talked about not being ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. He spoke about the righteousness that was from God. And then he began to go into this movement where From 118, we talked about those who have rejected God. And because of that, they've been given over. Their hearts have been darkened. They've been given over to the lusts of their hearts. And their lives become saturated with sin. And they resist the truth of God. And they live in rebellion. And those people, he says, are without excuse. And what's going to happen now in 2 through 3.20... Paul is going to speak now about two other groups, particularly here in this section, in the beginning of two, we're going to see he's anticipating the kind of moralist person, we'll say the good person, who might look at the characters of chapter one that Paul has just talked about and say, well, yeah, I agree. That type of person is without excuse, but I'm not that type of person, He's anticipating this objector as the, again, particular Gentile moralist, but he will then move to the Jew as well, who was religious, who would also look at that person and say, I'm not like that person either. And both of them, based on their ethics or their Jewish moral law, would think that this excuses me from the judgment of God. And Paul is going to move everybody to the place where Nobody has an excuse. We're all under God's judgment, rightly. So we're going to talk about judgment for at least the next two Wednesday nights. Don't get depressed. Uh, The gospel is still there. That's where we're headed. But again, Paul wants all men to see this judgment of God, to know how God is going to judge Because it's important. Because in the end, everyone is going to meet God as he is, not as they might wish him to be. So that's why anybody who ever stands in a pulpit, me included, should be able to say to you, don't believe me, read your Bible. Because you're not going to meet God as I say he is, you're going to meet God as God said he is. And it's important that in our relationship with God, we allow him to define who he is to us. And once anybody gets in and begins to be the only one who can define who God is to you, God can't speak that himself, there's an issue. So Paul wants people to know you're going to meet God as judge. You should know who he is and how that judgment is going to come. And even if you've lived a moral life and you agree with me so far that this pagan idolater, yeah, that person should be judged by me, I'll escape God's judgment this way. Paul's going to say, no, not you either. So verse 1, he says, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. So what Paul does here, again, in 2 then, is picks out this person who is judging. They're, They're looking at this description he's just given of a life saturated in sin that's obvious. And they're saying, because of whatever moral law or ethic they're following, I'm different than that person. I will escape that judgment. What he's saying is, no, no, no. God is going to judge, notice, according to truth in verse 2. The reality of who we are. And if you're betting on God's injustice towards sin, it's a bad bet. Because God is going to, as totally holy, judge all sin. Now, we are forgiven because he will judge our sin in Christ. But if not, There's nothing that's going to escape. And the Bible declares that just as God is a God of love, he is also a God who is righteous. 1 John 2.29 says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And Paul is saying, look, there's nobody that can look around and judge another person and say they're going to be excusable before God outside of the gospel. There's, there's nobody who is going to have a special case. And that's, that's how people begin to fool themselves, that their situation, even though there's sin in their life, it is somehow different than other people's situation. We hear things like this all the time. Well, we're living together, but it's, fi- it's financial. Like, like what this, this standard that you set for yourself, you would never allow anybody else to have. So we wouldn't want one of the pastors who's single living with somebody because of financial reasons. But it's okay if somebody else who's a believer does that. There's, there's always a way that we begin to work something that is particular to our scenario. God will get this. Right? There's, there's some special circumstance. And here... What he wants to say is, no, 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 look, the you is emphatic when he talks about it. He says in three, do you think this, O man, that you who judge practicing such things and doing the same, you will escape the judgment of God? You, even you, you're, you're looking at these people saying, yeah, they deserve the judgment of God. But he's say, do you think you'll escape? You'll somehow move out of the judgment of a holy perfect god you have no sin he says you're practicing the same things maybe not as quite outwardly maybe your sins are not uh, or your sins are more socially acceptable but he says you're you're doing the same things you you have sin in your life just as much human judgment people can escape you can commit a crime and have that not be known you can go beyond the jurisdiction of a, a law enforcement agency. You can find a, a loophole in court where you can get out of things. I guess you could break out of prison. You can, you can escape judgment from human beings. But none of those things work with God. Paul was saying in First Timothy, Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some men are clearly evident. And those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. You, you can't escape the judgment of God. There, It's not one thing for one group of people and another thing for another group of people. God as holy is always holy. No sin is acceptable in his sight. And he's trying to... Tell these people, no, 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 God's judgment is according to truth, not your special circumstances, not your particular law. And there's no way we can see that truth outside of Him. We're all blind. Solomon in his prayer and in the Old Testament says, if we would recognize the malady of our hearts, there's, we all have a sickness in heart. It's hard to see it, but God's light shines on it and shows us we have, we have a problem. We're broken individuals deserving of the judgment of God. Yet, even though they wouldn't escape, Paul brings this uh, kind of exhortation of hope, at least, in verse 4, where he says, Do you despise the riches of his goodness and his forbearance and his long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? This, He's saying, listen, don't don't despise, you, you, you're even sinning by not recognizing how patient and good God is being toward you. Don't you recognize his goodness? That word there for goodness is also translated kindness. Um, it's used of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 as kindness. It's also used in Ephesians 2.7 where it speaks of the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus, the kindness that God is going to have to show us through the eternal ages. That much kindness. He's saying, do you despise that kindness? God is good. His goodness is his inclination to deal bountifully with his creation. He doesn't, he doesn't create and then treat it wrong. He's inclined to bless. And he's saying, don't you recognize even in your sin, God has been good. He is gracious towards you. There is, he says there, forbearance. It's a unique word. It means to hold back or hold up or delay. It's used only here and in Romans 3.25. Shortly, Paul will use it again. And specifically then, he's speaking about God's patience in waiting to deal with the sin of all humanity until the cross. When God in times past, why didn't he just immediately judge sin? How could he be just and wink at it, or look over it, or allow it to move forward. How, how could he have that type of forbearance? And the image is God is literally holding up the wrath and judgment that should fall on us at any moment. Don't you realize his forbearance, Paul says? That he's being good and kind toward you, and that he's holding these things up. You, know, you can think even as a um, a child, You have issues because you're just a little creature who lives on instinct. Right? And you become older and you realize some of what you put your parent through. And you realize their forbearance, the, their patience that they've had, how they held up under the pressure. And there's a certain amount of gratitude that should come back when you recognize those things. He's saying we shouldn't despise God's goodness and patience. God allows some people to reject him for 70 or 80 or 90 years, holding up that wrath. In the past, he was patient for 700, 800, 900 years with humanity. We never know where the line is for us personally. We shouldn't push it. But Paul is saying, don't you realize? Don't you realize God's goodness his forbearance, and then he uses a third word, his long-suffering. Again, this is the same word used of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22, God's character, the same there. And it means a patient endurance or a steadfastness. It's particularly in regard to people and not just circumstances, not just patience because you're stuck in traffic, patience with an individual or people's treatment of you or interaction with you. And this was something that was, I think, quite personal for Paul. He knew by experience God's long-suffering with him. He persecuted the church. Jesus has to say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How, how long are you going to kick against the goats? God literally showing long-suffering, so much so that Paul would say in 1 Timothy 1.16, However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul says he was long suffering with me. You've been out there, you've been sinning, your life's a mess, you're fighting against God, you're resisting truth. You should realize it's long suffering. He he did it the most with me. He said, he saved me so that anybody else who has issues could say, that guy had more issues than me. And God was long-suffering with him. So much so that I think it's interesting, even Peter, who had issues of his own, Peter would pick this up and kind of cherry-pick this from Paul and say in 2 Peter 3.15, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles. Peter can say, and Paul talked about God's long-suffering, how, how he found salvation because of it, how long he waited for us to turn. But the enemy wants people to be deceived that because of the incredible goodness and patience of God, that God doesn't care about our sins. That there's no judgment toward them. That he, in fact, is fine with what we're doing. I wouldn't, my business wouldn't be going so well. My life wouldn't be going so well. These things wouldn't be going for me the way that they are. Or, I'm going to be forgiven. God has to forgive me. Presumption. Or maybe it's the opposite. He, he can at this point. After going this far, there's no way that he could yeah, so just stay on that track and keep doing what you're doing. Again, instead of believing the truth from truth itself, will you begin to believe a lie from the accuser of the brethren whose only goal is to steal, kill, and destroy? Paul says, don't you recognize the goodness of God, his forbearance with you? Long suffering, it should lead you to repentance. It shouldn't lead you into more sin. It should make you recognize he is holding up this weight of wrath that could and should fall on you at any moment. He has been patient, patient for you to turn. That's why, again, Paul would say in Titus 3, 4, and 5, when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. His kindness, his love appeared to us in Jesus Christ. It's a sin to reject that, to not recognize it, to not see it. And Paul's saying, don't don't you realize, you who think you're going to escape this, you're not going to escape. You do the same things. And you're inexcusable. And God is just being patient with you. He is being kind. But his judgment's going to be according to truth. It's going to deal with reality. It will also deal with sinful accumulation. Look at verse 5. He says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. And the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, God's grace and patience, he's being long-suffering with you, but when that is refused, it hardens a heart. We see here, and there's so many verses, you can do the study on your own. Uh, Just because I'm teaching the Bible doesn't mean I have to do all your work for you. You can look, just look at how many times hearts and hardness are connected in the Bible, a whole lot, in many different contexts, and you can learn a lot. But what he's saying here is, this person that God has been so gracious with, so long suffering, they are turning hard in their heart. Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen says, happy is the man who's always reverent, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And he says, know that you are treasuring up for yourself wrath. Sin is accumulating. There's constant daily transgressions. Robert Govett in his commentary says, Now he forgets his daily constant transgressions, but the Most High does not. And vainly does man forget if God remembers and will punish for each sin. doesn't help us if we forget God remembers. It is accumulating the judgment. And we live in a special day of God's mercy and forgiveness, but that day has an end. Just as God's patience and forgiveness is amazing, but there's going to be a day of his indignation and his wrath. And there's a contrast here, really a contrast and an irony in these verses, because in in the last we were confronted with the riches of his goodness, but now we see a sinner here treasuring up for yourself wrath. That's a fearful type of enrichment to be treasuring up the wrath of God. As it was in the days of Noah, Jesus says in Luke 17, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built, But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Humanity is all about treasuring things up. But Jesus says the problem is they're treasuring up the wrong things. Until the end of time, materialism is going to be a part of it. People are going to be treasuring up things. They're going to buy. They're going to sell. They're going to get married. They're going to be given in marriage. The world that... People are so caught up in and they give themselves to and they're given to sin and they're just treasuring that up and treasuring that up until he says, judgment came. Came in Noah's day, came in Sodom's day. People are treasuring up all types of things on earth and it's going to come in the last day. And then it's the wrath of God that is the thing should have been thought of and recognized. The Puritan Thomas Watson puts it like this, "'To be hardened under God's patience "'makes our condition worse. "'Incense justice will revenge abused patience. "'God was patient towards Sodom, "'but when they did not repent, "'he made the fire and brimstone flame about their ears. "'Sodom, which was once the wonder of God's patience, is now a standing monument of God's severity. Long forbearance is no forgiveness. God may keep off the stroke a while, but his justice is not dead, it only sleeps. God has leaden feet, but iron hands. The longer God is taking his blow, the sore it will be when it comes. And the longer a stone is falling, the heavier it will be at last. The longer God is wetting his sword, The sharper it cuts. Humanity needs to recognize that when God judges, it will be an accumulation of wrath. And he says that that day of wrath in verse five, it will be a day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Wrath and revelation. What that means is God's wrath will be revealed both publicly and personally personally. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's so many times in history we can look around and say how God balances mercy and judgment in the world is puzzling, where the line turns and flips from one to the other, why he allows certain things to happen or shows mercy in other places. We don't know. But there's going to come a day when it is going to be revealed to everyone, repentant or unrepentant, that God's wrath and judgment is fully just. And everyone who believes in him will recognize he did the right thing. And even those who hate him and who are unrepentant will be forced to admit that God's justice and damnation in their life is true and right and good. They will have to have it revealed to them that God is doing the right thing in pouring out wrath and They might not want to admit it, but it's going to happen. I remember reading in Spurgeon's biography, one of the things he said that led him most to salvation and toward the Lord was that when his mother was talking to him about the wrath and judgment of God, his mom looked at him and said, if you reject God on that day, I'm going to stand on God's side and witness against you. That's a mom right there who's serious. And he was like, the, the idea of my mom being on God's side against me, <laughs> like, traumatized him, you know? He just couldn't, couldn't imagine that. But, but I say that to say so there was a sense already in, in her, in his mother even, that God's wrath was just. And that nobody's going to stand there on that day and say, well, it shouldn't be like this towards this person. That's how humans think of things. But what Paul says is, that's not how his judgment is going to be. Having that wrath revealed, both publicly and personally, it's a work only God can do. But he will. And that is what the world has outside of him. Now, 6 through 10, he goes on, he furthers that. He says... God's judgment is going to be according to works as well. Who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is no partiality with God. We obtain salvation, again, through faith as a gift, not through works. But what Paul is saying here is God is still going to judge every work. Sometimes there's an idea that Uh, And I think it can even be difficult for believers. Like, it's just kind of one or the other. Like, we get to hell and we're there. We get to heaven and we're there. But what the Bible constantly says is, no, God is going to recognize the individual role that every person has played in their life. He will render to each and every individual person according to their works. That I get to heaven by God's grace and his grace alone. But once I'm saved, he has given me responsibility and ability in his spirit to obey him and follow him. And he will reward those works. In the same way, the person who rejects him, he will also judge their works. Humans are responsible for all their actions, saved and unsaved. And it's one of the balancing doctrines of why we want to remain faithful to the Lord. Sometimes that's hard for people to grasp, but we all believe that our salvation is determined in time. So the reality of our salvation is lesser than even just the quality of it. And what the Bible teaches is, yes, also the quality of your salvation, your rewards in heaven, how your eternal life plays out is also determined in time. What God is going to offer some in terms of resurrected body, glory, different positions, commendations. So many different things that the scriptures lay out. And in the same way as there are levels of reward in heaven, the Bible speaks clearly that there's levels of judgment in hell. The books are open in Revelation 20 and everyone is judged according to their works. James, we're told, many should not desire to be teachers because they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus says, woe to the Pharisees, who are hypocrites, and the scribes, because they will receive the greater condemnation. Before Pilate, he was standing there, and he said to him, you would have no power over me unless it was given to you from above. Therefore, those who handed me over to you have the greater sin. They were more responsible because of what was given to them. And every single individual is going to be rendered according to their deeds. Yes, every sinner who dies without faith is going to be judged eternally. But, you know, the person who's in here and Putin are not going to be judged the same. His decisions, he's responsible for. I hope he repents and comes to know Jesus Christ. We all know, and there's something in man that recognizes for God to be just, he needs to hold people accountable for their works. The deeds done in our body, whether good or evil, the scripture says. He renders to everyone according to their deeds. So, we should actively seek, notice he gives a a triad there three times in verses 7 and 10, glory, honor, and immortality, or glory, honor, and peace. When a person has true faith in the Lord, that is worked out then through obedience. That's what the Bible talks about. And when a person has real unbelief, that shows itself in disobedience. Obedience is the fruit of real faith. Disobedience is the fruit... Of true unbelief. And here in this passage, Paul is simply laying that out. You and I should be imagining, which is a pretty amazing thing, this gift that God promises, not because we earned it, but because it's his word, the reward of glory and honor, and that that's incorruptible, immortality, with eternal peace. If people want glory here, it's gone like that. People want honor here, and, you know, you get kind of tired of it. It was awesome when the Eagles won the Super Bowl, but you kind of want another one now. It's a wonderful honor. You want, you, you want it to keep going. In heaven, the glory that God gives, the honor that God gives, is incorruptible. It doesn't get old. It doesn't fade. It doesn't lose its value In fact, it probably only gets richer. God says, those people who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, they're going to find it. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish. On every soul of man who does evil, the Jew first and also of the Greek. This is our, our life's goal here should be summed up in those who are with patient continuance pursuing God through our life. It's a, it's a lifetime endeavor. We're supposed to pursue God in our teens, in our 20s, in our 30s, in our 40s. We don't say, oh, we, you know, we stacked up a couple good years. We could take a little break here. Or, you know, I'm young, I'll wait a little bit, and then once I kind of do these things, then I'll get serious about the Lord. No, by patient continuance, the pursuit of a lifetime, are we aiming for things heavenly, or are we aiming for things earthly? Luke 8.15 says, But the ones that fell on good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience person who hears the word in the right way they hear that word and they keep it with patience or are we those who are self-seeking and we become disobedient and god is going to recognize that in every individual life and nothing is going to slide in that and the fruits of the one are glory honor incorruptible peace and the fruit of the other is indignation wrath tribulation and anguish So for those of us who are believers, we should be sowing seeds of light. And if we're not believers, we should recognize we're not getting away with anything. And we are, as individuals, going to be responsible for our own actions. How am I relating to him? How am I recognizing his work in my life? Because the one will receive, again, wrath. Campbell Morgan, in his Voices of the Twelve Hebrew Prophets, says this, Wrath is the translation of a word which in the Hebrew simply means the crossing over from one side to another. The wrath of God speaks of a change created in his attitude and activity. The prophetic declaration will be remembered that judgment is God's strange act. That's a, a quote from Isaiah twenty-eight twenty-one. That is to say, it is foreign to his heart, to his desire, to his purpose, to his intention. But there are conditions upon which such wrath is inevitable. God doesn't just want to pour out wrath, but it is his needed response to certain things. If I'm just walking around a tree, how I relate to the tree will define our relationship, right? It's behind me, it's in front of me, it's to my left, it's to my right. Tree's not actually moving. I am. God does not change from who he is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's perfect. He's always the same. His years have no end. He's not updating with the times and culture. He's not saying, "Ah, a couple thousand years ago this thing was cool, but now it isn't. He's, He's never changing. Therefore, his attitude towards sin never changes. And his heart to do good also never changes. But where we stand in relation to him is going to define his actions towards us in certain ways. He wants to give incredible reward eternal life, and so much more in quality, not just quantity. But if a person remains self-seeking and does not obey the truth, they will receive indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. God will, rem- will render to every individual according to their deeds And, verse 11, for there is no partiality with God, God's judgment is going to be without respect of persons. He has never treated one group different than another. It's always a one human uh, attitude. This person, they get treated differently than this person. Sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. With God, it is never true. Even with his own people, Amos 3.2 says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, God speaking to his people, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. God's kind of like, you're my kid. Guess what? I'm going to discipline you. Here, when God judges humanity, he is not at all swayed by humanity's place in society. Peasant or king, rich or poor, uneducated, educated, black, white, doesn't matter. He sees the person, not the place. I remember reading G.K. Chesterton and him saying it was one of the things that allowed him to still believe in Christianity. Because in so many other places in the world, there there is no other way to say that people are still equal. If you're richer, you provide more, you give more, you're more talented. Why isn't that person better than another person? How come they're not? But he said, Christianity places everybody on equal footing before God. We're all sinners in need of a savior. It doesn't matter where you stand in society. He's not comparing man with man. We're standing before him, creator and creation. And when he judges, there's no partiality. Deuteronomy ten seventeen says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, the mighty and awesome one, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. It is not in him. He will never show partiality. Then in 12, he says this, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So Paul, to, to make a clear point, what he's, what he's doing here is, again, he's going to show that our, uh, his judgment is going to be according to obedience, not just our knowledge. But he's showing that it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew who had the Mosaic law, you're going to be judged, or a Gentile who didn't have the Mosaic law, you're going to be judged. Saying that you had one or didn't have the other doesn't give you an excuse before him. Everyone is still under sin. Every human being still proves that they're a sinner. And he's working his way, kind of the whole section, is working towards chapter 3, verse 9, where he says, we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. He's going to show, no matter who you are, Jew or Greek, whether you feel like you're one of those Greeks who followed a moral ethic or whether you were a Jew who had the law of God, you're still under sin. You yourself could not keep those things, and it was evident in their lives. So he explains that a bit as he goes into 13, where he says, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, But the doers of the law will be justified. Just because the Jew knew the law, they could look and say, we know adultery is wrong. It didn't matter. They had to keep that. Like, thou shalt not steal is not in the Bible for us to agree that that's a good idea. And then go steal something from our neighbor. It doesn't matter if if I have a mental assent to it. Yeah, that thing's a good idea. I'm supposed to live it out. The way that I honor thou shalt not steal is by not stealing things. Not by saying, yes, I think that's a good idea. So, knowing the law is not what keeps you or justifies you. Even the Gentiles, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having a law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. He's saying there is even a work of God in Gentiles. They haven't had the law revealed to them in the same way that the Jews might have. But they even know what's right and wrong. I'm sure that you could go just about anywhere on the face of the earth and even if they have never read the Ten Commandments, if you steal something from them, they will recognize that's wrong. You, you could go just about anywhere in the world, and a tribe in the middle of the jungle or in whatever city you want. It doesn't matter if they have heard this truth of the law of God like the Jew had. They, people still recognize what's right and wrong because it says there's a work of God, the work of the law written in their hearts God did this work in them. If that wasn't there, their conscience wouldn't bear witness. But their conscience are bearing witness. This is right. This is wrong. Now you can sear it. You could get to the point where your conscience is not moved by anything, but that you've done a lot of things to get to that point. You are still not justified before the Lord. So both Jew or Greek ends up again. Under sin, There's God as righteous and holy has no people in whom he excuses sin. That's the point. Nobody. There's nobody who's getting away with it one way or another. They've all proven that they are sinners and they are justly under God's judgment. Both the Jew and the Greek. And he says this particularly is going to show in the day When God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel, God's judgment is going to have all secrets open. You know, it's impossible for human beings to fully know the motives or the reasons that other human beings do things. Now, I know you often feel like you know that. You know why that person really sent you that text or put up that post. We, we have our suspicions very often, but there is only one person who can look and judge both the fruit and go all the way down to the root of things, the invisible part of it, where the life comes from, and judge correctly, and that's Jesus Christ. He is going to be the judge of all the earth. You and I, uh, we cannot judge people's motives. The Bible tells us that we are to judge fruit. A good tree bears good fruit. We should judge them by their fruit. If I look at somebody, again, who is a thief, who is stealing something, and I call them a thief, I am not judging them. I'm stating a fact about their fruit. I can't, though, judge the motive of somebody that I can't actually see the fruit of something as being negative. I can see people leading worship somewhere, and I can't say they're just doing that uh, because of their pride and how they want to be seen. I, I don't know that, and I can't know that. I can't read their heart. You can think things. You can have suspicions. God doesn't give us that leeway. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul would say, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. I can't judge the counsel of people's hearts. I can't judge what I can't see. I'm supposed to... we're, We're not supposed to check our minds at the door. I look at actions and I can say... Okay, that's an action that God says is wrong. I can judge that way. I can judge the fruit. But the motive, I can't. But what this is saying is there is no secret from God. When his judgment comes, what actually happened in a person's conscience, what they really knew, why they were really doing something, why they were really saying something, where they were really going, why they were really looking at that. All those things, notice, the secrets of men are going to be judged by Jesus Christ. There will be no secrets anymore. Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen says, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, that can make everybody afraid, and it should. It should be sobering. But I do think it's interesting, he says, the secrets of men and not just the secrets of the wicked. Because there's two kinds of secrets, good ones and bad ones. The Bible talks about certain secret things, like going in your prayer closet where your Father is, in the secret place, and who sees in secret, and he will reward you openly. You see, everybody's got a secret life. You know, we live in this weird world, particularly now, where people have these online lives that they think are secret, even though they post them publicly everywhere. I keep getting shocked when that is acknowledged. But everybody has a secret life. The... The reality is that a in Ecclesiastes, again, says whether good or evil. Again, 1 Corinthians 4 5 says, then each one's praise will come from God. There's an acknowledgment that once all the secrets are revealed, there's going to be some good secrets that come out. Right? What, what is your secret life with the Lord? I think that's a good challenge. What is true between just you and him? Because your secret life can last right now, but it's not going to last forever. It's going to come out. It's going to come out before the Lord, and it's going to be judged, and what is good is going to be judged as good. And each man will have his praise from God. You know, sometimes we have, um, I think, particularly because people have listened to Pastor Joe kind of all over for years. And we'll have scenarios where people will call here at our church and they will be at another church and they don't want to talk to somebody at their church uh, because they want what they're asking about to be secret. And they're trying to decide whether they want to come out with this thing or not. They've cheated on their spouse or they got caught in some situation or they blew a bunch of money gambling. And now they're trying to decide Do I say something? How do I handle this situation? And you know, I've had a couple of those conversations where afterwards I just think, wonder where this went. A lot of times people don't want to give you their information. You're not even sure if the name they're giving you is true. And I always just end up thinking, it's gonna come out one way or another. And it's not actually better if I wait till I meet God. I, I should live like I have no secrets before him right now. And even if I have that thing that's hidden, it should just come out. And whatever difficulty I can find here in this life, it's not anything compared to being free when I stand before the judge of all the earth. Of course, these are reasons why someone will not stand in their own righteousness before the Lord. But in terms of application for believers, I think it's good because the Bible says judgment will begin at the house of God. We're all going to stand before the Lord one day. Paul will bring that up in this very book at the Bema Seat of Jesus Christ. And when we stand before him, it's not going to be for salvation. If you're a believer, you're going to get into heaven but it is going to be according to works, according to faithfulness. And on that day, is it going to be seen that my secret life with the Lord, the thing that nobody else saw, was good and praiseworthy? Or is it going to be seen that it's deserving of the Lord's judgment? That God is going to have to burn it all away wood, hay, and stubble. We get shocked in this world because it happens that what somebody was on the outside, they weren't really in their secret life. And I think it's healthy for us to recognize that there's a day where God will judge the secrets of men. And if you start thinking about that a little more, you can be less fearful about that day and more ready for its approach. There are certain things we can't judge in others, but all of us, I think, can look at our own lives and say, All right, Lord, what is my life with you? And it gives value to those things that people don't see. They're never going to say thank you for The whole point is, they're not supposed to. This is just for me and you. This is the life that you've given me to live with you. The secrets that are good. And that's all right. Because there's going to come a day where everyone will have their praise from God. As Paul says. And I don't got to worry about any judgment until then. But no person is going to escape you can keep all the secrets from human beings. Particularly the moralists who would want to hide that because it wouldn't meet their outside ethic. When I stand before God, I'm not going to be justified. He will judge the secrets of men. By Jesus Christ. According to my gospel. There is hope in that. But there's also truth in that. That the one who lived and died and rose again is going to be the judge of the living and the dead he's the only one who can know everything about everybody everyone who's ever lived all our thoughts, all our true intents and he is a man he wasn't an angel who doesn't know what it's like to live human life he lived life in a human body and none of us are going to stand before him and say you don't get it he's going to say no you don't get it He understands more than we ever could, actually. He says, Jesus Christ is going to be the judge. The Father has committed that judgment to him. And he is going to judge the secrets of men according to my gospel. And there's hope in that gospel. And this judgment, again, is not the the way to push us so that we can be perfect and get salvation. The whole point is. Nobody can be excusable before him. And that's what makes the gospel good news, good tidings. So for those who don't know the Lord, uh, if you are here and you think that maybe what we talked about last week is you can agree on, yeah, people who are murderers or adulterers, heterosexual sinners, homosexual sinners, people who are envious or greedy or covetous, idolaters. Yes, God's judgment is on all those people, but I'm a good neighbor. I pay my taxes. I go to church. I keep a certain ethic in my life. What Paul says is, no, actually, you're inexcusable. You, of all people, should know you don't keep all those same things. You also have despised God's patience in your life, holding up the judgment that you really deserve. You should recognize that and repent. He's he's given grace that you've had time. And when he judges, it will be an accumulation. All the things that you forgot about, he has not forgotten about because he's just and he's holy. And we have not given him what he deserves. We've accumulated for ourselves in self seeking. And he will render to every person according to their deeds. And there's no partiality with him. He won't be bribed and he won't treat you differently. You don't have special circumstances before him. There's no excuse that's going to cause him to treat you differently than everybody else. It wasn't like that for the Jew, it wasn't like that for the Greek. And nobody's got any secrets that are coming through this judgment day. Jesus Christ is going to hold every man accountable, every woman accountable for their own works. But there is good news for those who realize, yeah, I'm deserving of wrath. I can't escape that judgment. He so said, Jesus took it for you. And all you have to do is Believe. But for the rest of us as believers, I think it's still healthy for us to recognize who God is, who we're going to stand before one day, and understand as believers, we should be patiently and continually seeking things that are above, not the things of the earth. The day when we stand before him and then enter into eternity, because we all want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So let's stand. We're going to pray. Again, if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would encourage you to come forward and let us speak with you. We'd love to help you, point you to him. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We do pray, Lord, that you would allow this to be a healthy thing for our hearts and our lives. Help us to see you as you are in truth. Great God, majestic, high and lifted up, holy, 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 the Lord God almighty. And Lord, we again pray that you would give us the strength to honor you, to seek you, To be faithful in the things that you put in our lives individually. To live life in that secret place where you are. Where you see and where you're present. And where you promise to reward openly. And Lord, we do again pray for anyone here that doesn't know you. That you would shine the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in their hearts and their minds. That you would save them. And Lord, we pray for those that we know that you are holding up because you're good and long-suffering judgment in their lives, that they would turn to you. So, we praise you. We acknowledge you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.